So we started a couple weeks ago with a letter to the church in Ephesus, uh, which commands the church for their works and discernment of false teachers. Uh, but there was also a warning from Jesus, right? He reminded them that they have abandoned their first love, reminding them that where, uh, well, sorry, ask them to remember where they have fallen from, to repent and do the works that they did at first. And today we're going to look at the letter to the church in Smyrna, which addresses the topic of faithfulness in tri times of tribulation. And one particularity of this church is that it is only one of two out of the seven that Jesus does not have a warning against. So there's definitely something that we probably have to learn from that church. And what is it that they're doing well that Jesus commands them for and has nothing to tell them as in I have this against you? So I invite you to bow your heads, we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll look at the passage. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your unconditional love for your church. And thank you for the revelation of your son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, as we dig into the letter to the church of Smyrna, read into your words, uh, I pray that you will open our hearts, open our ears, and point out how this is relevant to your church today. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So if you have a Bible, please open it to uh, chapter 2 of Revelation. Again, last book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, I think there are some at the welcome desk. You can grab one and you're free to take it home with you. Uh, and I think the passage will be also on screen. So Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11. And this is what the Word of God says. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write... The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So looking at the passage today, it is evident that the church in Smyrna is a suffering church. Uh, it does not sound like it would be pleasant to be a Christian in that city. Uh, but why, why is that? And let's maybe look at the context the church was living in at that time in that city. Uh, Smyrna was a, a port city located on the east coast of Asia Minor. Uh, it was about 40 miles north of Ephesus, which we talked about last week. And it still exists to this day. Uh, it's now called Izmir in modern-day Turkey. Uh, throughout its history, it's been under the influence of many different ruling powers, and among them, just to cite them, the Greeks settled there for about less than a millennium. And by the time the letter was written by John, the city has been under Roman administration for over two centuries. In terms of uh, economy and trade situation, the, the city was one of the principal cities in Roman Asia. And it was actually competing with Ephesus and Pergamum, which, which we'll talk about next week, uh, for the title of first city. And Smyrna was considered the most beautiful city and was even called the crown of Asia. So the fact that it is a port city also made it a great hub 
for trade. And Smyrna, which means myrrh, uh, was the primary exporter of myrrh, um, which was used as perfume, incense, or medicine. So the city itself was very rich and thriving. And it was also known as a center of science and medicine. In terms of religious, religious situation, the landscape in Smyrna was also quite diverse. Uh, due to its desire to show loyalty to the Roman Empire, Smyrna started the cult of Rome in uh, 195 BC. They deified the city and worshipped the goddess Roma, which cult eventually became widespread throughout the whole Roman Empire. There was also a large Jewish community, as well as first century Christians, since followers of Christ were growing in numbers when the apostles like Paul or John had traveled the region and preached the gospel. So now the church situation is uh, really opposite of what the city is. Uh, it con contrasts very much with, with the, the wealth and the, the richness of the city. It was difficult to be a Christian in Smyrna as our passage confirms today. So with that in mind, let's look again at the message that Jesus has for his church, uh, which I'll break down in three points today. First, we'll look at Jesus, who knows um, his church trials. He acknowledges, acknowledges their situation. And secondly, we'll look at Jesus' call uh, to the church to trust him fearlessly. And finally, we'll look at Jesus' promises, which he reminds us uh, to encourage his church. So if I go back to verse 8 and 9, I'll read them again. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So at the beginning of the letter, Jesus uses the same language as the previous letter we saw two weeks ago. Uh, Chris mentioned last week that uh, when it talks about the angel of the church, it could be literally interpreted as an angel, but also as a messenger or a pastor of that church. Uh, in this case, it could have been uh, Polycarp, who was bishop of the church in Smyrna around that time. And we'll, we'll talk about him later again. Um, and the way Jesus introduces himself in verse 8 is very pertinent to the message that he's sending to his church. Jesus describes himself as the first and the last who died and was raised. And in the context of this letter, where Jesus calls for faithfulness unto death, he reminds his church that he has walked this path before them. He died and he was raised. As a side note also, the city uh, in its past, the city of Smyrna had experienced the same kind of situation where uh, the city was completely destroyed, left uninhabited for four centuries, and then rebuilt. If we look at the next verse, verse 9, Jesus tells his church that he knows the tribulation, the poverty, and the slander that they are enduring. And unlike some, some might think, Jesus is not oblivious or unfamiliar with the many trials of his church. He knows what they are going through. He's not distant and far removed from the situation. As we read in chapter 1, he is in the midst of the lampstand, which we know symbolizes the church. And he holds in his right hand the seven stars, which symbolizes the angels. Isn't that comforting? To know that whatever difficulties we might face as a church, Jesus knows already? 
At that time, the Christian church was facing a second wave of persecution from the Roman emperors. Uh, the first one happened and um, was more uh, contained in, only in Rome, whereas the second one that uh, was under Emperor Domitian was extended to the Asian, uh, Roman provinces, provinces. And so Asia was one of them, and this wave did not spare the church in Smyrna. The word uh, tribulation that we read here in this passage can be translated as a pressure, something that you can feel, literally, affliction, persecution. Because of their faith in Jesus Christ and their refusal to participate in the cult, Christians in Smyrna were hunted down and either forced to deny their faith or be put to death. In this context, it's not hard also to understand that they were living in poverty. By refusing to acknowledge the emperor as God, their families, friends, homes, jobs, everything they had was on the line. The poverty we're talking about here is abject poverty. They had nothing. And on top of that, they were subject to the slander of those who say they are Jews. At that time, it was common for Christian to be accused of uh, cannibalism because of the Lord's Supper, or being atheists because they were not worshiping a new age of their God like the pagans did. They were accused of destroying families because you might have one member of a family converting to Christ and then being rejected by the rest of his family. Or also being disloyal insurrectionists because of their refusal, refusal sorry, to acknowledge the emperor as Lord. So what would you and I do under such amount of pressure? The easy path would be to just recant and have your status restored in the community. And what does Jesus mean when he says, I know? So let's look first what he, what he means by that. When Jesus knows the tribulation that they're going through because he has told his followers, this is what would happen to them. In the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus tells his disciple, In the world, you will But take heart, I have overcome the world. And in his second letter, Paul also instructs Timothy that indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So tribulation and suffering, they're both part of the Christian life. Jesus Christ suffered and was hated by the world, and his followers should not expect anything different. Peter puts it very simply when he says in his first epistle, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. See, Jesus never hid the cost of following him to those who wanted to follow him. He tells us to take up our cross and follow him. Secondly, Jesus knows also their poverty, and yet in this passage, he calls them rich. Uh, clearly, Jesus here is not talking about financial affluence or worldly possessions. Uh, contrary to certain teachings that might draw a parallel between your faith in God's promises and the level of prosperity that you enjoy, Jesus reminds his church that they are rich because they are being persecuted. You probably recall in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus calls them rich because he knows what inheritance he has promised to those who are persecuted for his name's sake. There's no amount of riches on earth that will ever compare to this promise of being an heir of God's kingdom. And finally, Jesus knows as well the slander that they are subject to by the Jews who are a synagogue of Satan. So what does that mean, a synagogue of the Satan? Jesus uses very harsh words here uh, to describe the Jews, which he also did during his uh, lifetime and his ministry. Uh, the Jews and the Pharisees had their hopes set on following the law that they got from Moses, and yet they were religiously oppressing the people of Israel. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus uh, said to them, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So you see, many times in his ministry, Jesus accused them of being liars, murderers, or hypocrites. He would confront them in regards to their righteous appearance and respond to their attempts to trick him by questioning their heart's disposition. And again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And Peter also encourages us when he wrote, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So there's nothing that the church in Smyrna was going through that Jesus did not already know. As we discovered, he had already warned his disciples and followers that all these trials would come upon them and that instead of avoiding them or fleeing from them, they should see them as a blessing. So that's easy to say, but how is one supposed to endure those trials? And why? For what purpose would someone persevere under such affliction? So let's read verse 10 again together. Uh, Jesus says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So first of all, I'd like to address the ten days of tribulation, uh, whether these are literally ten 24-hour days or just ten uh, periods of time. Uh, this is not exactly clear. Uh, but there's still something we can take out of this, right? We get from this uh, mention of the ten days of tribulation that this is a temporary tribulation. It has a start and it has an end. Jesus' call to the church in Smyrna can seem unexpected. So basically, we know Jesus knows that the church is going through these trials, and his instruction to them are, do not fear and be faithful unto death. And many of us might think, like, wait a second, if Jesus knows what they are going through, and Jesus loves those who love him, then why doesn't he remove the tribulation, the poverty and the slander from their circumstances? How can the church be fearless under such circumstances? We find answer to this question in the words of Jesus himself. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells his followers not to fear tribulation, even to the point of death, but rather fear God. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. 
I will tell you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So Jesus is helping us to put things in perspective by focusing, focusing sorry, on the things above rather than the things below. Man has no authority over our souls, but God does. Jesus also tells us not to be anxious about our lives, what we will eat, nor about our bodies and what we will put on. Again, he helps us to put things in perspective when he asks, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Our Father knows that we have need of those things. But he calls us to seek his kingdom first, and then these things will be added to us. How often do I fall down on my knees to seek his face when facing trials instead of trying to take matters in my own feeble hands? Finally, when it comes to slander, Jesus gives his followers instructions on how to respond as well. He told his disciples, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that hour what to say. As Christians, we need to remember that Jesus has given us a helper, a comforter in the person of the Holy Spirit. Another question remains, though, why does he allow this to continue instead of removing these trials? The answer is found also in this verse 10 that we just read. Jesus calls his church to share in his suffering so that they may be tested, tried, refined through fire. This reminds me of the time when God tested Abraham, asking him to sacrifice his only son, only to stop him in his track as he was about to plunge the knife in his son and said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I know that you fear God. Later on in the book of Hebrews, we found out that it was by faith that Abraham obeyed God because he believed that he could raise him from the dead. So you see, it is one thing to confess with our mouth that the Lord our God is one, that Jesus Christ is his only begotten son, our redeemer, and it's another one to act like it. I don't know about you, but the situation of the church in Smyrna is quite convicting to me. I can't say that I've ever had my life threatened for being a follower of Christ. So how would I react in that case? Or even if we were just to experience the same pressure of losing our jobs, our status, our possessions, or being bullied and reviled for his name's sake, would we still choose to remain faithful to Jesus? If I look back at some of these times in my life where I um, rested on Christ's promises and trusted him. These are the times where I experienced his faithfulness and when my love for him grew yet a little more. This is what the apostle Paul talks about as well in his letter to the church, to the Roman, um, when he reminds us that not only we rejoice in our salvation in the fact that we've been saved by Christ and justified, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. In Romans 5, 3 to 5, it reads, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces um, character, and character produces hope. And hope 
does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And James, Jesus' brother, also exhorts us in that way, saying, Count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. For we know that the testing of our faith, faith produces steadfastness. To stand firm when we suffer for Christ is a process that step by step takes the pains and injustice that we are subject to and produces an unwavering hope in his promises. We know that we can walk this path of suffering because Jesus walked it before us. He's not leaving, it, leaving us on our own to figure it out. He actually experienced this himself, so as to be an example for us. The Apostle Peter tells us, For to this, which is suffering unjustly, you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. As believers, we are called to embrace trials of various kinds with joy, knowing that they are opportunities to put our faith into action, tests which over time will grow us into godly men and women. Think about also the differences that it makes not only in our lives, but in the lives of those who persecute us persecute the church. Many of them have come to know the unwavering hope we have in Christ by witnessing the endurance, the steadfastness, and character that they saw in those they persecuted. This reminds me, like, a few years ago, uh, we were invited to meet a pastor from Syria uh, at Luke and Sarah's house. This was arranged by uh, Gain, or Power to Change, for those who, who know the organization. And they basically partnered with him on the ground to support the local church in Damascus. Uh, among other stories that he, he shared with us that night, he told us about this ISIS fighter who questioned the Christian faith when he saw how the local church was helping his family and their Muslim neighbors by handing out food baskets. He didn't see that among the Muslim community, but he saw the Christian do that for their neighbors. And after hearing the gospel from this pastor, he became a follower of Christ and got baptized. He shaved and he changed his appearance to put behind him his former life. When he decided to return to his town, knowing that he would have to cross many road checks, the pastor asked him if he was sure he wanted to go and not stay with them, because Damascus was a bit more safer than other areas in, in Syria, um, even though I don't know what safer means when you're actually there. <laughs> um, the pastor reminded him that, uh, oh, sorry, you see that uh, we, what he told us, which I didn't know at the time, um, in the Muslim faith, you are allowed to lie, especially if it is, uh, you're allowed to recant your faith just to be able to save your life. Well, the pastor reminded him, like, the Christians, Jesus calls us to the exact opposite, to stay faithful to him and that unto the point of death. And so he wanted to make sure this new convert understood that. Uh, the man went on his way, not only changed by the Holy Spirit, but also understanding and willing 
to bear the cost of following Christ. So finally, let's look at the end of our passage and read the promises that Jesus makes to those who are faithful to him and those who overcome. Let's read the end of verse 10 again and then verse 11. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So there might be another term here that maybe raises questions, second death. I don't know, I always hear around me that you only live once, therefore you only die once, right? As a side note, when I was uh, a kid in French class, learning how to probably spell the verb to die and to feed, which in French respectively are mourir and nourrir. As you can see phonetically, there's only one letter that's different at the start. So when you take that out and take the IR at the end, which is the suffix for the verbs of that category, there was still a question is one of these two verbs get two R's, the other one gets only one. Which one is it? So the way to remember that, the teacher told us is, well, remember, you only die once. Therefore, mourir only has one R. That was the rule. So what is the second death that Jesus talks about? Again, if you're not familiar with the term, it is referenced a few more times in the last chapter of the book of Revelation. When the final judgment takes place, it says in chapter 20 that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So in other words, the second death is what we call hell. Instead of eternal life with God promised to the saints, this is the place of eternal separation from God promised to those who did not receive Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, again, we read earlier, Jesus warns his disciple, I tell you, do not fear those who kill the body and after have nothing more that they can do. But I will tell you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Brothers and sisters, are we fixing our eyes on this life? Or is our hope anchored on Jesus' promises? Are we going to compromise when we are put under pressure this side of heaven? Or are we going to remain faithful to him who died for us while we were still sinners? You've probably heard this quote from uh, Martin Luther King. Life is not worth living until you have, found, you have found something worth dying for. Well, history tells us that Polycarp, which I mentioned earlier, uh, did find someone worth dying for. Um, as I said, he was the, the bishop of the church in Smyrna. He was converted to Christianity by apostles who came to share the gospel concerning Jesus Christ. And in fact, he is believed to have been uh, one of John's disciples, so John who uh, is believed to have wrote this letter. Um, he must have read this letter over and over and pondered on the cost of following Christ for his church in Smyrna. Do not fear. Be faithful unto death. Do not fear. Be faithful unto death. In 155 AD, he died as a martyr at the hands of the Romans who burned him at the stake for refusing to burn incense to the Roman emperor. 
and his response to his accuser very much resonates with uh, Jesus' words uh, in this letter to the church of Smyrna. He's quoted to have said, 86 years I have served him, that is Jesus, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. He faithfully followed in Christ's footsteps unto death, like many others before him and after him. What a gracious thing it is when one suffers unjustly for the sake of Christ, for they will receive their reward from Jesus. James echoes these words as well when he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This crown of life is the eternal life that Jesus promises to those who are willing to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. See, this is the good news that we preach. Jesus came to us once to redeem us and save us. We celebrated that a month ago. While we were dead in our trespasses, that we may live eternally with the Father because he shed his blood for us. And we know that he will come again to make an end of suffering and tears because he has promised so. So brothers and sisters, if we call ourselves Christian, if we acknowledge Christ as our Lord and Savior, then the question is not if we will suffer, but rather when. We're blessed to live in a region where our lives are not at stake. They're not threatened for our beliefs. Uh, but let's not take this for granted. Rather, let this letter remind you first of the cost that we might have to pay one day to remain steadfast in, in, in our faith in him. But also let's be reminded of the reward he promised to those who acknowledge him before men. Eternal life with him, where there will be no more suffering. If you're not familiar with Christianity this evening and with the good news of the gospel, then I fully understand that this call of Jesus to his followers seems like absolute folly, and it goes against our human instinct of survival at all costs. But I pray that you will not ignore these words from Jesus himself, who said, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So as we close, I'd like just to leave you with these words from the Apostle Peter to reflect on. It's in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verses 3 to 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold and perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter to the church in Smyrna. Lord, uh, may we realize uh, the price that you paid for us uh, and that it is only uh, fair for us to understand the cost of following you as well. Lord, we pray that we might be fine um, trusting and faithful unto death when trials come. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.